Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining um, for PSA Fundamentals for Commercial Real Estate Transactions. We have a few really great speakers today. Um, Ashley Brown is an associate at Goulston and Stores, and she focuses on complex commercial real estate transactions. She represents owners, institutional investors, and developers involved in the acquisition and financing of office, industrial, multifamily, residential, and mixed-use properties. Ryan Hanafi is a partner at Morgan Lewis. Uh, he has a wide-ranging practice that encompasses all aspects of commercial real estate. He represents local and national developers, private equity firms, institutional and non-institutional lenders and investors, and other owners and operators of real estate. Uh, my name is Stephanie Faraci. I'm an associate at Morgan Lewis, and I'm a co-chair of the BBA's Real Estate Section Fundamentals Committee. Um, and my practice is also wide ranging. I represent lenders, developers, property owners and operators, uh, commercial tenants and clients in the sports industry and complex commercial real estate transactions. And then my fellow co-chair, Yadi Sanchez, she's an associate at Goulston and Stores and she represents clients in development, permitting, zoning, acquisition, disposition, financing and related matters. And she also represents clients in the development of mixed use, office, retail, institutional, and multifamily residential projects across the United States. Um, here's a short agenda um, for today's presentation. So we'll provide a brief introduction to the topic, um, as well as some context for you. Ashley will be speaking about due diligence provisions in the purchase agreement, as well as common contingencies and closing mechanics of the deal. And then Ryan will be speaking about representations and warranties, as well as covenants in the purchase agreement. And then we'll have a brief Q&A at the end, um, but feel free to send us comments or questions um, in the Q&A function, and we'll save them for the end. Um, so here's a quick introduction um, to the purchase and sale agreement. So before you even get to a purchase and sale agreement, there will most likely be a letter of intent called an LOI or a term sheet. And this is really the buyer's offer to the seller um, that sets forth basic terms, purchase price, um, anticipated closing date, facts about the inspection period. Um, so an offer that the, that the buyer is making to the seller to buy the property. Uh, while this document is negotiated, it's oftentimes not binding, meaning that just by signing the LOI, the seller is not obligated to sell the property, nor is the buyer obligated to buy the property, as the LOI just contains basic information. Um, oftentimes, the client will come to you with a signed LOI already and then ask you to draft the purchase agreement or review the purchase agreement that comes from the other side. I find it particularly helpful to um, be involved as much as possible in the, in the negotiation of the LOI, um, even if you're not actively negotiating and you're just reviewing what the client is agreeing to. I find that to be really beneficial. So when it comes time to negotiate the purchase agreement, um, the facts and the terms agreed upon in the LOI really um, take into consideration um, the, the consequences of, of agreeing to those terms. Um, next up, after you have the LOI, the parties will negotiate a purchase and sale agreement. And once this document is signed, it becomes a binding contract um, obligating the seller to sell the property and the buyer to buy the property. And then after the purchase agreement is signed, you'll go through um, usually an investigation or a feasibility period and then move to closing the deal. And once closing occurs, title to the land passes to the buyer from the seller. Um, I'm gonna turn it over to Yadi, who will be giving a little bit more context um, about purchase and sale agreements. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Um, so before, before you, you actually start negotiating your purchase and sale agreement, um, you'll wanna sort of take a big picture look um, uh, of, of the transaction and really understand, um, you know, who you're representing, whether you're representing the buyer or the seller, 
um, and and um, and also understand what what kind of land um, and and property uh, you're you're dealing with. And this will this will affect um, how much information you're requesting from the seller. For example, you're representing the buyer. Um, and it'll also um, help you focus on, on what terms matter to the person that you're representing. So, so for example, you might be dealing with uh, a vacant land um, uh, where you may be focused on, um, very focused on a title and survey matters, um, but there might not be, you know, any leases that you'll be dealing with, or there might not be any um, any uh, permitting entitlements that that you'll be requesting. Um, but if you are, um, if you're representing a buyer that is um, that is uh, uh, looking to to purchase um, entitled land, so so land that has permits, or or if you're representing a buyer that might want to assemble um, that that is looking to purchase one plot of land and then and then later assemble them, you might be thinking about um, you might be thinking about whether. The permits are are actually uh, say say that you can build a thing that that um, your client wants to build, or you may um, be thinking about you know keeping uh, uh, if you're in the process of doing a land assembly, uh, moving the the purchase forward very quickly so that uh, neighboring uh, owners don't find out about the, about the purchase of the the land that's that's under um, the, that that uh, you want to be under agreement and and hike up their prices. Um, if you think about, um, uh, you might also think about whether your your um, your buyer wants to um, do an addition, and, and and you know whether whether or not you can do that in in the place that that you're intending to do that, um, or you know alternatively the the your buyer, if you're representing the buyer, might just want to continue operating the existing property as it is. So. Perhaps they're just interested in taking over a, a mall uh, development and continuing the, you know, to to operate um, as landlord of the tenants that are there. So you'll want to really take stock of all of those of all of those items before you before you launch into the actual uh, negotiating process. Um, and then and then also um, take stock of what the seller's relationships, the improvements are, and and um, you know. Uh, and and with this sort of how um, how sophisticated your your seller might might be, um, so so that you have that in the background of your um, uh, in your negotiation. So if the seller is a, a developer and builder and knows the permits inside and out, you might ask different questions. Or if you are um, dealing with an institutional investor, you, they they might have a, a totally different view of of their improvements, and they might have been a little more. Uh, zeroed out on that. So, so understanding all those things is, is going to be very important to, to what uh, your client will and, and you will ultimately focus on. Stephanie, can you hit next, please? Uh, thank you. Um, so, so, um, uh, with that, I, I also wanted to um, just provide a, a little bit of a reminder. Um, after you take stock of sort of what type of transaction this is and and who you're representing, you also want to uh, make sure to just get organized. Um, uh, the the PSA is is really the the guiding document that that kind of guides um, a transaction through closing. So you'll want to uh, make sure that uh, if there are documents that the seller is providing, for example. Uh, in a in a war room or a um, or some some kind of you know Dropbox account or something, uh, you'll you'll want to make sure that you have all those documents, um, uh, print documents that that often helps you um, you know just stay organized, especially when it comes to title and survey matters. Um, you'll want to make sure to have a physical print of, of your survey for sure so that you can highlight and, and uh, specifically uh, draw lines where, where easements might be, for example, uh, to in order to determine whether or not something needs to be terminated and, and sort of what, what course of action you're gonna take. Um, with this, you're also gonna determine some uh, lead time items. Uh, they, they often involve third parties, so, uh, so title and survey, 
uh, sometimes you might uh, request those as even as you're negotiating the, the first and sale agreement, depending on how long your inspection period uh, or due diligence period might be, which which Ashley what we'll, we'll talk about. Um, determine if uh, if it's a stabilized asset with with operating tenants, you'll you'll determine if um, you know kinds of tenant estoppels you'll need. Those take a lot of time to to receive back, um, so you'll want to make sure to prioritize them. And then, um, and then also um, for for due diligence purposes, you'll you'll want to make sure that uh, to, that the client is engaging um, on, on environmental testing early on. If if, um, if you will be undertaking that, um, always create a checklist. Uh, checklists they they are lifesavers, um, and and whatever you do, um, especially as junior associates, you're generally expected to track deadlines and keep the team organized. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to Ashley, who will um, talk a little bit about due diligence. Thank you, Johnny. Um, so on due diligence, um, so what is it and why is it important? Uh, when you're going to buy a property um, and as the buyer, uh, you wanna know that the property that you're buying is going to um, not have anything on title that causes your client a problem, that they're going to be able to operate the property in the way that they want, that there aren't any violations, that there aren't restrictions against the property, um, and generally that there isn't going to be something that's going to become a headache after you buy. Um, so what do you do in due diligence? Um, typically, uh, you would get materials from the seller, and then you would also engage third parties to provide reports for you. Um, so typically, uh, if you are doing this at PSA signing, um, there would be provisions in the agreement that govern, you know, what you're allowed to do and what you're not. Many times, because transactions are fast moving, the seller wants the buyer to be doing due diligence during the negotiation of the purchase and sale agreement. So if you do that, you would have a separate access agreement that governs, you know, your access to the property, what you can do and what you can't and the seller would start giving you seller information. Um, that's all subject to confidentiality. If you get seller information before signing of the purchase and sale agreement, almost always your due diligence time clock starts um, upon seller information being delivered. This is uh, deal specific, but I'd say if you have an access agreement and you're signing it, there's usually an expectation of the seller that your diligence clock started upon signature of the access agreement. Um, so I always advise my clients not to sign it on a Friday night and to hold off their signatures until Monday morning. Otherwise, you've just lost two days of due diligence. Um, so typically, the due diligence period um, is anywhere from 30 to 60 days. It's usually 30 to 45. Um, but that, that really depends on the property. Um, and so this would be you know, negotiated usually in the terms of the LOI. Um, the scope of due diligence. So you're looking at everything from tax records, um, budgets for any type of easement agreements or you know reciprocal easement scheme on the site, which would mean you know shared snow plowing, shared um, maintenance, landscaping with you and other properties. Um, you would also look at title and survey. So you'll order an update of the title. Um, real estate title is, you know, a, a list of all of the documents that are on record that burden or benefit your property. And it's important to understand what those are so that you can advise your client as to what their um, rights and obligations are once they become an owner. Um, survey shows you where easements are, where your utilities are, where your property line is. Um, this is all important because you don't want to have an easement running under your building that gives the easement holder the right to remove anything um, that blocks access to the easement area. You know, that could be forced removal of your building, which is very expensive. Um, and so these are the things we look at to make sure that there's no, um, you know, no issue uh, when it comes to that. Um, so another thing that we do that's a third party is a phase one environmental report. And you would have an environmental engineer go and test the property to make sure that there are no, um, you know, hazardous material um, on the site that are in violation, you know, of applicable laws that are or that are beyond, you know, a certain recommended amount. 
Um, when you do that, uh, there is liability that goes along with doing that type of testing. No, excuse me. Sorry, I'm fighting a cold here. Um, so uh, when you go onto someone's site, if you cause damage, you're going to have to, you know, indemnify them and reimburse them. So this is um, typically something that uh, is done in connection with the access agreement or the purchase and sale agreement. Um, what does it mean to go hard? So going hard means that you have completed your due diligence and there's a deposit at stake um, and you can no longer get a return of your deposit based on an adverse diligence finding. So, you know, if your diligence period starts on PSA signing, um, typically you would have, uh, you know, 30 days, 60 days to do your due diligence. And if you find something that, you know, really doesn't work for your client, you can terminate the contract and get your money back. When you go hard, you no longer have that termination, right? And you have to proceed to closing. And if you find something you don't like, um, you would lose your deposit. Can I have the next slide, please? So common contingencies in a purchase and sale agreement. Um, you know, sometimes there's a financing contingency. In most of the purchase agreements I do, there is not a financing contingency, meaning that you have to buy whether you get financing or not. Um, but there can be a financing contingency. So if your client um, wants one, that should be negotiated specifically in the LOI. Um, a permitting contingency. So if you're buying um, vacant land uh, with the intent to develop, uh, you might have a permitting contingency where you have, you know, a 12 to 18 month period upon which you can seek approvals uh, to do the type of development that you're looking to do. And if you can't um, get those approvals in that time frame, you either have the right to terminate and get your deposit back, or sometimes you would have a termination rate, but you would not get your deposit back. And these are all deal specific. Um, environmental condition. So usually we would say that there has not been a material adverse change in the environmental condition of the property um, between the expiration of the due diligence period and closing. And that's because liability is, um, it relates to environmental matters, can be very expensive and you don't want to step into somebody else's mess. Next slide, please. Um, so getting the closing and closing mechanics, conditions to closing. So typically, you know, we have a list of um, conditions, which would be like clean title, that we can get a title policy insured by a reputable title insurer, subject only to standard exceptions, ensuring the seller's title, you know, passing to the buyer. Um, we would also have something like in a, you know, large office building, you may have an estoppel requirement that we've received estoppels from tenants, which are like certificates saying that nobody's in default, all the rent's paid. Um, you know, from a certain percentage of tenants so that you know that the building is performing the way it should. Um, it could be uh, no adverse environmental change. Sometimes um, you would look for no material adverse change, although that's pretty broad. And sellers um, usually push back on that because they want you at the due diligence period to have signed off on everything. And then they view it as um, a lot of times the purchaser's risk of things that are out of their control happening on the property. Um, seller's closing deliverables. So this would be a deed, um, an assignment of leases, a bill of sale, uh, all of these various closing documents, which give the legal rights to the buyer. Um, and then buyer's closing deliverables would be buyer's counterparts of those um, and the purchase price. Uh, prorations and expenses. Uh, so a property often has income and liabilities and you know those accrue on a daily basis and so we pick usually midnight the day of you know before closing is the prorations date um meaning that like all property taxes that have accrued up to that date are paid by the seller and everything moving forward is paid by the borrower same with rents everything up to that date would be due to the seller everything after that date would be payable to the buyer um so that's kind of how you get to the point where uh you know um exactly how much money you have to pay and or are getting out of the transaction. Next slide. All right, so I think that uh, is the end of my presentation. It was great speaking with you all. Um, and if you have questions in the end, feel free to ask. 
Yeah, hi folks. Um, thanks everybody for joining us today. My name is Ryan Hanafi. Um, as Stephanie said, I'm a partner uh, in the real estate group here at Morgan Lewis. Uh, I'm here today to talk to you about representations and warranties as, as well as covenants contained in a purchase and sale agreement. Um, so first and foremost, representations and warranties. So these are probably one of the most uh, negotiated parts of a purchase and sale agreement that you may uh, that you'll see. Um, what they are is essentially a statement of fact by the buyer and seller, primarily the seller, <clears throat> with respect to things that the other party may not otherwise be able to independently verify. So um, there, in, in these representations and warranties will apply both on the day that you sign the purchase and sale agreement and typically also on, on the day of closing. And I think you know one thing to, to take into consideration here is that obviously everything that we're talking about is um, is kind of general, and everything in in these sorts of documents are are and can be negotiated. So I think we're kind of talking high level just to give everybody a picture of of what it is we're really talking about. Um, and so one of the other things about representations and warranties that they are designed to do is to allow a party to rely on these statements because they would not be able to otherwise find them out on their own. I mean, when so when a buyer is acquiring uh, a piece of property or a building, they, you know, they're they're acquiring that property on an as-is basis, except for these the the representations and the warranties that the, that the seller is giving. And so the again, the, the goal is for the seller to disclose information that may not otherwise be readily available for a um a buyer. One thing to to also think about is that you know reps and warranties and the way that they're treated and document are a little bit different than other types of um, obligations like covenants that exist. And so the liabilities um, that are that relate to reps and warranties and, and breaching a rep, um, they actually, at the closing, they do not merge into the deed. Uh, and instead, they could create post-closing liability. So which is why as a seller, um, you always want to uh, do as much as you can to, to limit the uh, reps and warranties. So Steph, if you could uh, flip to the next page, excellent. So um, objectives. So for the most part, what we're really talking about here is is seller reps, because the the buyer reps are really going to be uh, limited in terms of uh, as we'll get to on another slide, things like whether or not a buyer has the authority, whether or not a buyer is dealt with a broker, whether or not there's been any bankruptcy, those sorts of things. Um, so really what we're talking about is across a lot of these slides is what are the reps and warranties that the seller is giving? So as a seller, again, because you're trying to sell a property and limit your liability as much as possible, you're really trying to not give as much information unless you really, really have to. Um, in particular, some of the things that you're trying to avoid is statements on um, either property condition or title. Those sorts of things a buyer can figure out on their own and they can either uh, accept it the way that it is. And, and as Ashley mentioned, it's often a closing uh, condition that title is in satisfactory form, um, but it's it's not necessarily going to be something that the uh, seller is, is representing to. Um, uh, you know, and, and another thing that, which is an objective for reps and warranties is, um, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, is how you treat liability um, both I guess on an on an after closing basis as well as before. Um, typically, you know, if if a, if a rep becomes untrue uh, during dependency of the purchase agreement, a buyer's remedy is to just take their deposit and walk away. Whereas after closing, a buyer can actually recover damages. Now, um, on the other hand, for buyers, when they're uh, you know negotiating reps and warranties. They really want to do as as much as possible to uh, get as much information and extract as much information as possible from the seller. Uh, they're going to want to try to get things that uh, may otherwise be readily available because it gives a buyer uh, opportunity to terminate the contract if they don't like the the results or whether or not a, a, a rep essentially was untrue. Um, and so, in, in particular, you know, some things that a buyer may want a seller to rep to is. Uh, and you're talking about kind of a lease context, is whether or not there's a breach under a, a lease. Now, a seller would not, during the pendency of the purchase and sale agreement, would not want a tenant default to give rise for a buyer to be able to say, well, your rep is now untrue and I can terminate the contract. Instead, as a seller, you'd really try to mitigate that risk by saying, well, I can potentially tell you that we've never, uh, we have no knowledge of a default on the day you are actually signing the contract. So, in many occasions, you will see um, contracts say, 
my representation and warranty is limited to uh, the day, in fact, when the contract is signed on the effective date. Um, because that's that's somewhat important to kind of protect against liabilities that may exist during the pendency of the PSA. Um, and so in, in terms of practicality and, and when you're actually practicing, um, you know, I will have, as I'm sure most lawyers do, have two sets of forms. One is going to be a form where you have, you know, very limited representations on the seller side. Uh, and then you're also going to have a form from a buyer's perspective where uh, you're, you're going to see a whole swath of of things that would be very nice to have. And I think from a, from a negotiating standpoint, uh, the way I kind of look at things is if you don't ask for something, you're, you're not going to get it. So the more things that you can try to ask for within, certainly within reason, without offending uh, the opposing party is, uh, something that you may want to try. Uh, so I think step, you can kind of flip to the next page. So um, we have a slide here of just things that are, are somewhat typical. I, I mentioned these before. Um, from each party, you're going to want to know that each side has the ability to enter into the transaction and that has uh, the authority to do so. Uh, another critical component is that neither side is dealt with a broker except for you know <clears throat> a broker that actually brought the deal that has been disclosed because you wouldn't want as a um, buyer to close on a transaction and then learn that later on that the seller, in fact, had another broker that's uh, entitled to you know, some sort of compensation. So you do want to uh, make sure and, and you know, carve that out. Um, other types of things that you, that you may see are, are things like uh, a seller saying that as of the effective date of the contract, you know, the date that was signed, there's no sort of condemnation proceeding that's affecting the property. Uh, and, and the purchase agreement will have a separate section dealing with condemnation and casualty, but a, a buyer may want to know, okay, what am I getting myself into on, on day one? And that's normally a fair ask. Um, another, another, uh, component or, or fairly customary rep and warranty is whether or not the seller has ever received a written notice from a, a governmental authority claiming that there's a violation. And as you'll see in the rep that I included, it's a little, uh, watered down with respect to, uh, materiality. In terms of there being no material violation, as well as um, saying, you know, that such violation has not been remedied, which because um, the reps are made again on the day of the uh, the contract and on the closing date, you know, having that has not been remedied would potentially allow the seller to cure a, a breach or a violation had they received notice. All right. So um, thank you, Stephanie. So first and foremost, when you are about to sign a, a purchase contract, um, you need to make sure that your client has, in fact, reviewed the reps and warranties and confirmed that they are all true. Um, because that is a would be a, a monumental um, mistake if if you make a rep that right off the bat is uh, is untrue. And it's it's easy enough to have your client confirm whether or not they the the reps are true. Um, and part of that is making sure that you're not representing to something that is unknown. Again, I, I would not uh, advise my clients to say for, for them to rep to the fact that a tenant may not be in, in default. Yes, you may be able to verify that a tenant has paid its rent, but there may be other things ongoing at the you know, within the property that you just have no knowledge of and that you really should not be uh, repping to. And as, as part of that, I think it's important for um, uh, sellers to try to limit as much as possible you know, what, what knowledge means. So when you're saying, uh, you know, to our knowledge, there is no tenant default, you want to say, okay, well, is the seller's knowledge, does that mean everybody that works for the seller or that's under the seller, seller umbrella? Um, or should it just be limited to a specific individual that may have, you know, a lot of knowledge about the operations of the property? So. Uh, as a seller, again, you want to try to have and, and limit the knowledge to a single person or two people um, in order to kind of, again, limit the amount of liability. Um, another, another component is, is making sure where, where possible to limit your, your reps to materiality so that you don't have some sort of ticky-tack or immaterial um, breach give rise to a termination right for a buyer. Because that would that would you know could be it could be a, a mistake. And in fact, um, last year um, in the fall, once the the debt markets were kind of uh, becoming a little more volatile, and 
and uh, folks were terminating contracts and trying to get out of deals. You know, we had uh, as a as a seller, I was representing a seller, and we had um, a contract where we said we were delivering uh, all of the uh, complete copies of the leases, which included uh, you know all of the supplements and modifications and amendments to the lease. And so we said we're delivering complete complete copies in all material respects. Now that materiality qualifier ultimately was pretty important because what happened is about three weeks before the transaction was supposed to close, we heard that the um, buyer was having difficulty raising the funds that it needed in order to close as, as many other buyers were during that time. And so we received a, a letter you know, under the notice provisions of the contract saying that we had uh, breached a rep because we, as this, on the seller side, had missed delivering a notice of commencement, which essentially is a tenant acknowledging what the start data under the lease was. Oftentimes that sort of document is included in a lease file. It's not always included in a lease file, uh, but it was not included as part of the data room that was delivered to the buyer uh, when the contract was signed. So buyer trying to get out of a contract because they couldn't raise the money, raises their hand and says, hey, there's there's a breach here. Um, you're in violation of the contract and we're, we're reserving our rights to, to exercise any remedies under the contract. In response, the seller team said, well, no, this is not a material breach um, of, of the representation of warranty. It's qualified to materiality. The information that's contained in that notice of, of commencement also can be found in both the tenant estoppel as well as subsequent amendments and therefore it wasn't material and therefore our rep wasn't breached. At the end of the day, the buyer uh, acknowledge that and, and scrambled in order to close on the closing day, which they did. Uh, but so these, these types of things are real um, and certainly come up from time to time. Um, another another uh, example, was, as you'll see my fourth bullet point here, is you want to try to avoid um, broader, ambiguous statements, um, as well as other statements that in, in the fifth bullet, statements that can be figured out by the other party. Uh, I was representing a buyer down in um, Texas, actually, on a billion-dollar transaction, which is a multi-property, 12-property uh, portfolio, massive deal. Um, and because of our leverage position as the buyer, we were able to get the seller to comment that the, the buildings that they were transferring to us, uh, which had been constructed the last two to three years, uh, were constructed in a good and workmanlike manner. Um, without any uh, material defects. Now, about six months after the closing, it had been determined that as, as my guys acquired the property that there was some uh, pretty considerable substandard uh, building that had happened at one of the, at one of the sites. Uh, the, the amount of the bill, I think, to repair the work was in the realm of three to four million dollars. And so uh, because there was that rep, the buyer was able to pursue the seller uh, for damages because their their rep was not true uh, when it was made, uh, and so those sorts of things, as a, as both a, a buyer and a seller, you need to be really careful for um, because these do have uh, real world implications for our for our clients on both the buy side and the sell side. So next uh, next slide, Steph. So one of the things I thought might be useful is from a for for you all to see. Okay, uh, when we're negotiating. You know, either on a, on a seller form or on a if, if you're taking the position of the buyer, what might be uh, something that you are are putting into a document into a purchase and sale agreement? So, as a seller, my typical form would say, you know, the schedule that we're attaching to this document is the schedule that comprises all the leases as of the um, effective date, uh, and then we'll say that you know the leases that are delivered are true, correct, and complete in all material respects. Kind of what I just talked about now. As a buyer, Steph, you can flip. As the buyer, you're going to include all sorts of other types of uh, items and statements with respect to um, with respect to a lease and to tenants. Now, I'm not going to uh, take the time to read all this, but the gist of it is, as a buyer, you are trying to get as much information about these leases because that's the you know the revenue driver for a property. Uh, and you want to make sure that there are no issues, whether or not they are material at the property. Now, what you see here would be, you know, most likely whittled down, and you would, and, and the seller might give uh, another statement or a couple of statements that may be knowledge qualified, that may be tied to, um, you know, whether or not they've given written notices of default. But 
the fact of the matter is, as a, as a seller, you are doing your best to try to limit any sort of representations with respect to, you know, third parties and things that a buyer might be able to figure out with um, things like a uh, tenant estoppel certificate. Uh, and in particular, as I had um, kind of mentioned before, one thing that you do not want to have um, kind of screw up your deal is if a, a rep is breached as a result of somebody else doing something. So you would not want to say, uh, you know, again, on the closing, on the day you're signing the purchase and sale agreement, that there are no defaults by a tenant or that you just haven't received any sort of uh, notice of a lawsuit, you know, as another example, uh, because if if there was, let's say, a tenant default where one of the tenants stopped paying rent or somebody submitted a, you know, a, a frivolous claim for litigation to you, you would not want to be held uh, accountable and you'd want to try to shift that risk to a buyer such that if those things do happen, that the buyer would have to take the property subject to those. And again, those are those things are, are typically negotiated as amongst the buyer and seller. And a lot of it um, depends on your leverage position and your negotiating position. So um, what happens if there is ultimately a breach of a rep during the uh, pendency of the purchase and sale agreement? So the first thing that would typically happen is a buyer would, would reach out to the seller and say, hey, there's a breach of rep here. Uh, most purchase and sale agreement would, would give a sire to the seller to the extent um, a rep could be cured, uh, you, you, a seller would have a cure right. If uh, the, the rep cannot be cured, um, in most instances, a buyer's uh, remedy would really be to uh, just terminate the, the contract and get a, a collection of its deposit back. Because again, these things are, are, are in most cases outside of a seller's control. And out of the extent, uh, you know, a buyer may have a little more leverage position, you may be able to say, um, as a as a buyer, well, if there's an intentional breach or the seller did something to cause a breach, then I can collect some sort of damages prior to the the contract being uh, being terminated. Um, another uh, component of these reps and warranties is what's called an anti sandbagging clause, <clears throat> and essentially what that is is if you as a buyer learn of a rep prior learn of an untrue rep, <clears throat> excuse me prior to closing, but you ultimately decide to close over that, then you cannot come back later on and sue the seller for a breach of rep because you had knowledge of it. So, um, and you also see that in the context of if during the due diligence period, you know, which is that 30 to 60 day window, typically that Ashley was talking about, a buyer also learns that a rep is untrue and they ultimately decide to go, go hard and have their deposit become non-refundable, then a buyer can later on, you know, prior to closing say, well, hey, this rep was breached. As a seller, you would say, well, no, you had knowledge of it. And you know, and there's a contract provision in here that says you can't terminate or, or seek to terminate for a rep you knew was untrue prior to the expiration of DD. Now, after closing, um, there's kind of a, a few things that when I was a junior associate, I kind of scratched my head and said, eh, from uh, you know, a, a perspective of like what's fair and not fair, I didn't always understand. Um, why you know some things were negotiated in the contract. So one of those things that you'll see with respect to reps are survival periods. So as I mentioned, reps will survive uh, the the transfer of the property and the deed, uh, but the reps that do survive and that are made on the closing date will only survive for a certain period of time. Uh, and everybody has different experiences, but the general uh, window that you see is a survival period of six to 12 months. Meaning if there is a claim that a buyer discovers a rep was, was untrue 18 months after uh, the closing happened, they could not pursue a seller for damages. Um, and so obviously as a seller, you try to make that period as short as possible, but as a buyer, you want to make it as, as long as possible. Now, uh, in most instances, if there was a breach of rep as a buyer, you're going to know whether or not uh, it was untrue, you know, shortly after you acquire the property, which is how most buyers get, get comfortable with these types of provisions. Um, another concept that you'll, you'll commonly hear referred to as a, as a basket and cap. And so um, one of the things that a, a seller's liability, what will happen with the seller's liability is it's actually capped at, a, at typically a certain percentage or a dollar threshold of the purchase price. Um, in other words, and, and these caps can be anywhere between one and, and 5% or one and 3%. Uh, as a seller, 
you obviously want to have um, those percentages as, as low as possible. So that, in other words, if uh, your your cap uh, is one percent, uh, let's uh, let's say of the purchase price after closing, uh, and you have a hundred million dollar transaction, then your liability, despite the fact that you received a hundred million dollars for the for the uh, for the sale, your liability is only capped at at one million dollars, which um, uh, you know, seems to me when I was first first understanding how all this works was uh, you know kind of a head scratcher. But that's just kind of how the how the market and how the industry has has played out. Um, another thing and component of this is what's called a basket. And so a basket essentially is that no damages can be paid by a seller or able to be paid unless you exceed a threshold amount or a floor of damages. So. If let's say a, a, um, a seller has a rep uh, that's where it says there's no there was no litigation affecting the property, and there in fact was, but that litigation claim was for ten thousand dollars, and that was uh, or you know the damage claim related to it was ten thousand dollars on a uh, post closing. If you had a basket of let's say fifteen or twenty five thousand dollars. That ten thousand dollar litigation claim would not fall and, and satisfy the the basket requirement, and therefore, as a buyer, you would not have any recourse. The aggregate of your claims would need to be in excess of, of what the basket is. And again, and again, depending on your transaction, um, you may or may not have one, and and certainly the amounts of that basket would be negotiated. Now, another thing, as a seller, uh, you want to try to limit really is your post-closing liability and who is responsible for uh, the, the reps and warranties that you're giving. Um, and so as a buyer, uh, you want to try to extend and make the seller uh, and, and give yourself, I guess, a lot of different opportunities to pursue you know, a creditworthy entity or to make sure that there's money there. Now, most sellers uh, in commercial real estate are um, typically single purpose entities, meaning they their sole purpose is to own a single property, and so when they sell that property, they and and you know receive the proceeds from the sale and then disperse it out to their investors and their owners. Um, they have no other assets, and so as a as a buyer, you you would have to pursue essentially a shell company that no longer really has any any dough to back up the reps and warranties. So as a buyer, what you there's a couple different things that you can do. One is you can say to a seller. Well, okay, you could have you know up to a certain amount of liability on a post-closing basis based on the reps and warranties that survive, and therefore I want you to escrow and do what's called an escrow holdback, such that the amount of the liability would be put into a, a third-party escrow account, so that the buyer could access those funds if um, if there was a claim that the buyer needed to to do. Now, another option for a buyer is to seek uh, a joinder. So that you know, a creditworthy affiliate or a fund or or a high net worth individual would sign on in uh, essentially as a co-signer to the reps and warranties that uh, survive on a post-closing basis. Now that would allow a buyer to have somebody that actually has assets, that actually has some money that you could pursue without having to uh, you know chase a shell company and the proceeds that the shell company distributed. Um, now and again, a lot of this is based on leverage and whether or not a, a you know, a seller really wants to get the deal done, as I've seen a lot of sellers, as a lot of my clients will say, we're not doing either of those things. Sorry, you can chase the proceeds as a as a uh, as a buyer. Now, the, the the third option that a buyer has is to say to a seller, okay, well, if you won't give me the joinder, you won't give me the the backstop. I at least want a covenant from the seller that they are going to keep around uh, cash or some sort of assets. Um, so that if I do have a damage claim, I can pursue you um, on a on a post closing basis, and at least I'll know that there will be some funds there. The downside, obviously, is that if the seller doesn't do that, uh, then you're again you're you're left chasing a shell company. So um, that was kind of uh, reps and warranties. Now the the other uh, section of a purchase agreement that we're going to talk about um, are covenants. Now. Covenants are are really just obligations of either party in turn and what they are going to do during the pendency of the contract. Both buyers and seller make covenants. It's but the the most of the covenants are made by the seller because it, it will relate to um, how the what the seller how the seller is going to operate the property and what the seller can and can't do. And similarly with um, with buyer, what the buyer can and can't do. Now this, the, the covenants that are given 
essentially where, wherever you see um, either shall or shall not in the document. So if the seller shall do this or the buyer shall do that, that is an obligation or a promise of the buyer and the seller to do something. And that, and that is a covenant. And if that covenant is, is uh, breached, then uh, it's a default of the contract where, where either party would have remedies, uh, again, prior to uh, closing. So, um, you know, again, we're talking about kind of what's what's custom and, and what's not custom. A lot of the uh, covenants that would be customary are something like, you know, the seller is going to kind of continue to carry on its operations as it would in the, in the ordinary course. Um, the seller is going to main, maintain insurance. The seller is going to pay its taxes, um, those sorts of things. Uh, another one is that the seller is not going to change the zoning or is not going to record something on title. Um, and another another big one as a buyer that you always ask for is to make sure that the seller is curing monetary liens and making sure that the, the mortgage lien of the seller um, is removed. Now, from a buyer perspective, what you are um, kind of limited to in terms of your covenants is really, or what the seller is seeking from the buyer, is really that you know the buyer is not going to talk to your tenants. The buyer is not going to do any sort of inv invasive testing. The buyer is not going to reach out and request inspections from you know the municipality or the state with respect to the property. So as a seller, you want to try to limit what the what any sort of liabilities the buyer could cause for you. Um, another, you know, there's also uh, indemnity provisions where a buyer is obligated to indemnify our seller for for damages that it causes um, at the property uh, pre closing, which will survive post closing. Um, uh, you know, and again, there's a lot of negotiated provisions you'll see are, are things with respect to leases, whether or not a seller can or cannot enter into a new lease if it's, you know, operating operating the, the um, property in the ordinary course. Uh, if they wanted to sign a, a below market deal, um, could they do that or not? And again, that's something that will always get negotiated. Um, and kind of as, as Ashley talked about, you know, one of the things the seller is obligated to deliver as a, as a, um, you know, condition when you have when you have tenants is that you'll get some sort of percentage of tenant estoppel certificates. And as a buyer, you're you're as a seller, sorry, you're you're covenanting to um obtain those. Um now I, I had mentioned originally that you know the covenants and the obligations respect with respect to um things that arise prior to closing um merge into the deed. And so as a seller, um once you're you know you're you're uh you convey the property by a deed and you had obligations uh, to not do certain things prior to closing, and the buyer the buyer closes, the buyer then can't sue you if you if you did something uh, wrong or if you breached one of those covenants. Once the buyer um, closes, they they no longer have recourse. But there are certain things that um, will survive um, will survive closing, or that you know are specifically um, attempt. There are specific provisions that will attempt to kind of say what the buyer and seller are going to do or how the buyer and seller are going to work together on a post-closing basis. Some of those things are um, like press releases. A buyer and a seller may say, okay, neither side can release a press release um, without kind of the say-so, without the approval of the other party. Um, there's also um, cooperation covenants where the buyer and seller will um, try to make sure that all the costs are properly allocated and shrewd up um, on a post-closing basis at some you know period in time after the closing. Um, and there's also there also may be indemnities that were covenants prior to closing that may survive on a post-closing basis. So um, uh, you know, as I mentioned, covenants are treated differently than uh, reps and warranties and how and how they work. Uh, if there is an obligation of the seller and the seller does not do that obligation, and as a result, um, the the buyer decides that it needs to terminate the agreement because the default was so bad. Um, you know, a buyer would have the right to to terminate the contract, get its deposit back, and oftentimes it would have the ability to recover some amount of damages that would um, you know make up for the lost time and the lost dollars that the um, buyer incurred as a result of having to kind of pursue the transaction. Um, that amount can be you know tied to just third party costs. It can be a certain dollar threshold, you know, whether it's 25, 50, 75,000, that's always negotiated. Um, now, if there is a, a default on uh, with respect to the buyer, and let's say the buyer doesn't bring the purchase price um, and, and the cash to the closing like it is supposed to, the seller's sole remedy is to collect the deposit. 
um, you know, that is put down, which is why that deposit is, is always negotiated the amount. Um, and so that the, the collection, the deposit by the seller is their sole remedy. Um, if there is a buyer default, um, at or prior to closing now on a, as a post-closing basis there for, for covenants that, um, you know, were to exist prior to closing, there is no remedy, um, for either a, um, buyer or seller. Uh, and so that's that's important to know. Now uh, that does not relate to you know, covenants that may exist on a post-closing basis with respect to true ups. Or if, for instance, uh, my bullet point here is if you know, let's say the seller had agreed to do some sort of work post-closing um, for the for the buyer because they had been it had been ongoing and it was just easier for the seller to do that uh, post-closing. If the seller does not get that work done. Um, you know, the the buyer would have the ability to pursue the seller without it. You know that obligation of being being terminated at the closing time. Um, and so, I think from uh, I think that is it on the on the reps and warranties uh, and covenants. And so, I'll turn it back over to uh, Stephanie and Yadi. And, and thanks everybody for your time today. Thank you so much, Ryan and and Ashley, for your presentations. Um, so we we now have a, a few minutes um, before the end of the program to to do a Q and A session. Uh, feel free to um, enter in uh, any questions or comments that you might have in the uh, using the Q and A function um, that's located at the bottom of your screen. Um, and we will we will stay on to to um, answer any questions. Thank you. I think we'll give it another minute or two. Um, if um, if anyone thinks of anything um, after the program, uh, feel free to uh, to email uh, any of us. We'd be happy to um, answer questions offline as well. Well, if there are no questions, I think that means we can wrap up the presentation. Thank you again to our speakers today and to Yari and Stephanie for putting on this presentation. We hope everyone enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your day.